Barack Obama borrowed the fight slogan she invented. Yes, we can. Or in Spanish, si se puede. When I met uh, Barack Obama, he said, I stole your slogan. And I said, yes, you did. (laughs) Knowing her, uh, I'm pleased that she let me off easy. Because Dolores does not play. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Dolores Huerta, an icon of the civil rights movement, one of the very few who is still here with us today. She and I discuss how she built the United Farm Workers Association, how she raised 11 children while changing the world, and finally, sexual assault. One of our male organizers sexually harassed one of our women farm worker organizers. Mm. For the first time, Dolores Huerta describes an alleged act of sexual coercion that took place within her historic union, how she found out about it, how she escalated it to the man in charge, Cesar Chavez, and how he handled the alleged perpetrator with a light touch. No, if he was not fired, he probably should have been. And that began to really change my mind a lot. Or not, not change my mind, but to realize that I, as a woman, had to do something about the way the women were being treated. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Dolores Huerta is a civil rights legend. I would not have been able to see what's hidden in the fields of our country without Dolores. Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez fought for farm workers' rights. This is the only major documentary about Huerta. I thought there would be more. It's called Dolores, and it came out in 2017. I mean, if you look at the books that were written, you never see Dolores Huerta referred to as co-founder. Look, we really kind of set the record straight. I mean, women cannot be written out of history. It explains her backstory, how she was born in New Mexico in 1930. Her father was a coal miner. Her mother was a business owner in Stockton, California, where Huerta grew up. And in the 1960s, along with Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta led an effort to secure basic rights for tens of thousands of farm workers. The documentary tells us that story and also digs a bit into Huerta's personal life, specifically her shortcomings as a mother, the disappointment felt by quite a few of her 11 children. It was very hard. We were spending the night in people's homes that we we didn't know. These kids voiced the classic tension over the working mom. She is amazing, and she is absent. The movement became her most important child. Realized the importance of the work, but I was also very jealous of it. So there's scars there. You know, there's scars there. Though as I watched, maybe it didn't have the intended effect on me. More than Judge Huerta, I wanted to understand how the hell the modern working woman could be more like Huerta. Good morning, Ms. Huerta. How are you? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I want the Dolores Huerta Guide to Motherhood. I am fascinated by how you lived such a full public life while having 11 children. Yes. 
Huerta was a schoolteacher. She was in the middle of a divorce and already the mother of seven children when she made a big life-appending decision. Start a labor union with Cesar Chavez. Well, um, it was a hard decision for me to make and all my family thought I had gone bananas. You know, they just, they were very, very critical of my decision. Mm. Yeah, and, and it, it was kind of a calling. It was mm. a calling that this is something I had to do. It wasn't rational, didn't make any sense at all, but I felt it was something I just had to do. Did any part of you feel guilty at all? Because, I mean, most parents, they want to give their kids more than what they had. You grew up in a comfortable middle-class home, and you were choosing to raise your kids in poverty. Yes. Yes, it was. It was voluntary poverty. And yes, my, my kids didn't have, you know, all of the perks that I had growing up, the dancing lessons and the music lessons. And yeah, mm-hmm. my kids sacrificed that. But they, on the other hand, they had some very historical adventures, you might say. Mm-hmm. They met a lot of great leaders. Uh, and But they went through, you could not buy that experience that they went through. <laughs> you know, you could not buy it. And uh, they all turned out really great. So, you know, they just, the kids survived. The, and, but I think the one thing about motherhood, I want to say, is that as women, we are the only ones that are responsible uh, for the care and the education of our children. Uh-huh. And uh, we've got to change that. Society has got to be responsible also. I always like to quote Coretta Scott King, who said, we will never have peace in the world until women take power. Mm. And women cannot take political power unless they have some support systems for them. I got to speak to your youngest child, Camila Chavez. Oh, thank- you did? <laughs> yes. Thank you for connecting me with her. Um, and I asked Camila for an early memory of going to work with you, with mom. And she talked about a time that she was seven years old and you took her to a picket line. I'm going to play this for you. I remember just the reactions of people, you know, those saying, yes, of course, keep up the good work. And then I really remember those that um, yelled at us, you know, go back to Mexico. There was even a truck that had guns in a rack right there in the window that you could see uh, just driving back and forth to intimidate us. Wow. Wow. Can you tell me, Ms. Huerta, what is the benefit of children, a seven-year-old girl, for example, your daughter, what is the benefit of children being exposed to that? Why do they have to be exposed? Well, I think it's important for them to be exposed because that way they can see that those are the conditions that we want to change. When she saw this and realized that she was a target of this hate, Mm -hmm. that, again, hopefully the feeling that comes out of that is that you want to change it. Mm -hmm. You know, understanding that there's nothing wrong with you. It's the people that are directing these slurs at you. There's something wrong with them. Were you ever afraid that you were exposing her to too much? No. You know, some of my kids went to jail with me. My son, Fidel, who's a doctor, was arrested. Mm. Uh, My son, Emilio, who's an attorney, was arrested. Mm. Uh, My son, Fidel, when we were uh, picketing at the Gallo Vineyards, the Gallo Mm -hmm. Wine Company. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I, I think that this makes them stronger. Mm. You know, this makes them stronger. They, they realize that there is hate out there and that we have to counter the hate and to counter the ignorance because a lot of this just comes from ignorance, right? 
when your daughter recounts that story and as you talk about it, honestly, I feel really inspired. I feel so compelled by it. It doesn't sound to me like some reckless foray in motherhood. It sounds like, wow, really important exposure to give the young citizens, the future leaders of tomorrow. The other thing I had to wonder about, Ms. Huerta, was just, did you ever find a partner, a boyfriend, a lover, a partner who fit, who, who could be a true partner for this way of you living your life? You know, I really have to say no to that because, uh, even with, uh, my last partner, Richard Chavez, uh, I was very much in love with him, uh, but uh, we had a lot of confrontations, you know, mm. Jane Fonda, I had a wonderful summer camp where she got the celebrities like and uh, farm worker children together to go to her camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to fight with him because he would object to the kids going to that camp because he heard that they were skinny dipping, <laughs> which I don't know if it was true or not. But, you know, he had very traditional ways of raising children, mm. especially girls. And I said, no, my girls are going to be free. You know what I mean? They're not going to be constricted. Right, right, right. And so, uh, you know, we always had these fights about the way the uh, kids were going to be raised, you know. Mm. And uh, I really have to say, no, that I never did find a partner that, that really felt the way that I did. Your work, the boycott that you were building globally, it required that you spend a lot of time in New York City. And you had to think about what to do with your kids. Some of them came with you, but one of your daughters, you left her with a family in Bakersfield, California. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh-huh. When you were ready to come back and reunite with her, she did not want to go back with you. Yeah, well, she didn't know who we were. <laughs> Yeah, because no, she, she was just, you know, she was a child when we left her there. And we come back a couple of years later, and she just said, who are these people, right? Well, so we had to win her back. <laughs> yeah, and you say this, you know, giggling and smiling, and I'm just trying to think about, if I were the, the mom of a child who rejected me because she didn't know me, that would hurt. Did it hurt? Well, it did hurt, but you can understand why she felt that way. You know, mm-hmm. she hadn't seen us for a couple of years. You might say that one can feel guilty about that, but it's also you can understand why it's happening. But you also know that it can be remedied and it will be remedied. How did you remedy it? How did you win her back? Well, little by little, having her to stay with us and visit with us and be with her siblings. And and of course, that's what brought her back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you mind me asking about it? Because it's... No, no, it's fine. It kind of blows my mind. I mean... (laughs) Well, it's just one of those uh, one of those sacrifices that one has to make, you know. That is just a very different approach to parenting than a lot of people have. Well, you know, one of the things uh, that I decided when I was having all these kids is that I wanted my children uh, to be independent because their children they have to leave you eventually. That's just life, and mm-hmm. I wanted my children to uh, be. Uh, independent from the time that they're born, really. From the time they're born. Yeah, well, as early as they can be, you know, uh, teach them to be independent and, uh, and to be resourceful. 
Why did you decide to have 11 children? I mean, you just sound so busy. I mean, you're so busy. I was a good Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you didn't believe in birth control. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, you know, and I know my mother used to kind of get mad at me and say, why are you having so many kids, you know? Mm. And so it seems that you were able to shake off the guilt that a lot, if not most women would have. Is there any lesson from there, any advice you can pull out for us? A piece of advice I can say to all women is that, number one, don't feel guilty. uh, Because, you know, sometimes in my life I was a single mother and I had to support my children. So I had to go to work to support my children. And I had to find somebody to take care of them while I was working. I mean, that's just the process that we go through. Mm. And it's a responsibility that women always put on themselves. I think my advice is say to women, hey, let's bring other people in to share the responsibility with us, okay? That's what we have to do. Probably looking back, maybe maybe I wouldn't have had so many kids, but that's all, <laughs> you know, that's all in the past. It is what it is, you know? After the break, Dolores Huerta explains how she pulled off a historic win for workers' rights, and she reveals for the first time how her union, which fought for farm workers in the field, turned a blind eye to sexual abuse inside the organization. I'm not judging it. I'm just trying to understand it. I'm not, I'm not bringing the standards. Well, you know what? I, I, I'm still judging him. <laughs> He's one person that I refuse to engage with in any way. This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Dolores Huerta directed a behemoth campaign that will forever live in the annals of labor history. California's San Joaquin Valley holds some of the richest farmland in the United States. Yet those who work the vineyards live in poverty. Farm workers lived in shacks without the basics. We don't have toilets in the fields, for example, washing facilities, so unemployment insurance, uh, health benefits, not even uh, cold drinking water in 100-degree weather. The life expectancy of the 3 to 4 million farm workers in this country, uh, 49 years. Female farm workers were routinely required to have sex to get their measly pay. Female farm workers have been abused for generations. I became aware of it as a young woman. And my mother would never let me work in the fields. That's Dolores Huerta speaking in a 2013 Frontline documentary called Rape in the Fields. In it, several female farm workers come forward, including a woman named Olivia Tomayo. Olivia testified she was raped by Rodriguez three times. He said that if he wanted to, he could kill me, she says. Era como... Era malo. Huerta learned about these terrible conditions at an early age. When she was 25, she joined the Community Service Organization, or CSO, where she met Cesar Chavez. The two of them wanted the CSO to organize a union for farm workers. 
the CSO said no. And that's when Chavez convinced Suerta they should start their own union. Caesar, what made you pick Dolores, a woman, to help you form the United Farm Workers? We had worked before together, and uh, she believed, as I did, that, that this job could be done, that workers could be organized. She had the faith. That was in 1962. Huerta and Chavez planned to spend the first five years kind of laying low, doing the quiet work of building unity among their base, farm workers mostly from Mexico. But then, just three years into it, they got a curveball. Farm workers from the Philippines decided to strike. The Filipino workers went out on strike because they were being treated so brutally mm-hmm. by the growers. They were getting beaten up. Mm-hmm. In the labor camps, they shut off their light, gas, and water so that mm-hmm. they couldn't even cook for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that we had to support the Filipino workers, so that kind of cut short our plan. Huerta and Chavez realized if they did not join the strike, the farm owners would play divide and conquer, pit Filipinos against Mexicans. So they joined. And so began the great Delano Grape Strike of 1965. The Delano Grape Strike, begun for union recognition on a pay scale of 140 an hour, began a new chapter in the long farm worker history. But the growers still managed to play divide and conquer. We're so close to the Mexican border that the growers kept importing strike breakers, like almost overnight. Mm. So people would come out on strike, and the next day you'd have a whole new crew of strike breakers in the fields. Mm. How long have you scab on your fellow workers? The fight was brutal. Growers did not want to concede anything. What do you think of the idea of a union for farm workers? Uh, I think it's uh, ridiculous. Why do you say that? Well, I said I won't go into that with you. You ask me what I think. This is what I think. Uh, I will say this. Farm wages in the last... 12 months right in this area has increased from $1.10 to $1.60 an hour. Isn't that because of the strike? No, that's nothing whatever to do with it. The strike lasted five years. Right. We started the strike in 1965. The only way that we could possibly win is through a boycott. The growers came to the bargaining table only after the farm workers mounted a global shame campaign, a boycott, telling the privileged people of America and the world about how grapes are really grown. The boycott truly is one of the best uh, forms of struggle for a uh, group such as ours, and it gives the best kind of involvement to people who are willing and who want to help uh, the disadvantaged and the poor. That's the voice of Cesar Chavez. Though, funny story, Huerta says that Chavez is one reason the great boycott almost didn't happen. Cesar wanted to boycott potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Huerta explains that her union already had one contract with one particular grape grower. Chavez worried that pushing for a nationwide grape boycott would violate that contract. So he had an idea. Forget grapes. Focus on Potatoes. Huerta did not like that. You know, I said, look, Caesar, when people think of potatoes, they think of Idaho. They, they don't think of California, okay? It was kind of interesting because, you know, we never had a lot of money mm-hmm. ever. And I was in New York City already starting to take over the boycott. Mm-hmm. So we're having this confrontation on the telephone. And so then I said to Caesar, well, maybe I, I need to fly back to California mm-hmm. so we can have this conversation in person. 
but he didn't want to pay for the plane fare. Mm. <laughs> so he gave in. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how the great boycott happened. Because <laughs> he didn't want to pay for plane. Right. And did you know it was going to fold that way? Like, ah, he's just not going to want to spend the money. No, I had no idea, but that he gave in. He gave in. <laughs> so the lesson there is if you can drive up the cost of the argument for the other person, you can win. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> Huerta built the great boycott in large part by cashing in on her relationships with powerful people. She had a distinct, and I think utterly charming way of making friends. Take, for example, Robert Kennedy, the senator and attorney general who fought for civil rights. Huerta became very close to Kennedy. She was, in fact, standing by his side in a Los Angeles hotel minutes before he was assassinated. But their friendship started with an argument. He had incorrectly given credit to another organization for a campaign that her group ran. She'd heard he was passing by, so she decided to let him know she was angry. Robert Kennedy was going to be at the Coronado Hotel in San Diego. So I went to confront him. Miss mm. Huerta, does that come naturally to you? I don't think it comes natural to anybody. This is what we have to teach people that they have to learn. I would disagree. I've I've had the experience of confronting people in power. I would say for some people it is actually very innate, and for some people it is not. And so I'm just wondering for it's, you. I think it's, uh-huh. it's hard for everybody. Growing up, I was raised by my mother. Mm. Uh, my parents were divorced. And the one thing that my mother always taught me as a kid you have to use your voice. You have to speak up. When you see something wrong, you have to speak up. Mm. If you get criticized, ignore it, you know. As long as you're doing, uh, trying to help people and people uh, criticize you, it's okay. I, w- I was very shy growing up, mm. you know. But she was always pushing me, pushing me, pushing me out there uh, to be in the public eye. Uh-huh. And so how did you evolve from shy to this very fiery... I will confront people with power, capital P. You know, you always have that anxiety, Mm -hmm. but it means what you're doing is important. Mm. And it's okay to be a little bit scared. You get those butterflies. And and this is what I like to say. It's like when you exercise and your muscles hurt, you know, your muscles are hurting because you're doing a good job. Okay. (laughs) And the same thing with the anxiety that you feel before Uh you speak. Uh, It's Okay. But don't let that stop you. Don't let that anxiety of doing something different or something bold keep you from acting. Mm. That it just goes, it's part of the process. No, I love that. So that anxiety means what you're doing is important. Exactly. Mm-hmm. At supermarkets throughout the United States, pickets try and persuade customers not to buy grapes. Here in San Francisco is the largest Safeway supermarket in America. It continues to sell grapes, though not many. We took one chain at a time. Uh, we would take the independent grocery stores and get them to take the grapes off. And then we, we'd go to the next middle-sized chain, like wall bombs. Then people would pick at wall bombs until they took the grapes off. In a city like Chicago, sales are down by 30%. So, you know, little by little, we got the grapes off the stores. You know, I went back and I read a Time magazine cover story from 1969. And what really struck me was 
you got everyday people to think about grapes and make a decision about whether they're going to eat grapes or not eat grapes in a way that like it's similar to the mask battle today it's like a it's a very political symbol you know at some point you had 17 million people boycotting mm-hmm. grapes how do you take something and make it the subject of a debate in dinner parties where literally half the family is going to have grapes and half the family isn't and they fight about it Everybody eats, everybody has to eat food. And when you tell people, you know, farm workers are out to work in the fields, they don't have toilets in the fields uh, to wash their hands after they pick your gr- the grapes that you're gonna eat today or the mm. food that you're eating, you know, that strikes very close to home. Mm. The farm workers, they don't have cold drinking water. They don't have rest periods. They don't have unemployment insurance. They don't have the right to organize. That really touched people's hearts, I believe. There's one very interesting kink that happens along the way. Mm. You're building pressure. You're winning over the public. And then politicians increasingly step in Mm. to criticize what you're doing. Ronald Reagan, who was then governor of California, called the boycott immoral and Mm -hmm. blackmail. What your view is of the strike or boycott in the the grape industry? Or the grape boycott. Well, I've classified that in the past on a number of public occasions as, as immoral, and I think it is. Some of the President Nixon, once he was elected, stepped in to have the government buy grapes and ship them to Vietnam for the soldiers there to eat. Tell me your, your reaction to, to that development. Well, let, me, let me give you something that's probably unexpected. When it came out in the newspapers that Ronald Reagan was eating grapes, Okay, Mm -hmm. And all the volunteers, they were, oh, my gosh, look at this. Reagan is out there eating grapes. We said, great. That way, this is getting around to all the public, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Now, you could not ask for this kind of publicity. You know, Mm -hmm. you have the governor of California, the president of the United States eating grapes, okay? And at that point in time, well, people were, again, against the Vietnam War. And so this just helped us uh, gain more support. Mm, because these high-profile people stepped exactly, in. Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. But they stepped in not on your side. They stepped in on the other side. It's okay. Didn't matter. It still helped you. It, it still helped us, yeah, definitely. You couldn't have asked for better free advertising. Exactly. Uh-huh. And did you know that instantly, or were you at first concerned? Oh, yes, uh-huh. You did? Oh, yes. Because the war was becoming more and more unpopular, and you had all these Nixon and Reagan and all these people supporting the war. Mm-hmm. I see. In that same Time magazine article I mentioned to you, the one from 1969, there were three words in that article that blew me away. You were the director of this incredibly successful historic boycott. Time was writing about it. It was a feature on Cesar Chavez. And you were described simply in three words as the, quote, tiny, tough assistant. (laughs) well (laughs) i I guess uh, as a woman i should be probably glad that i was even mentioned (laughs) Uh, because as we know women's work has been ignored for centuries right when that article came out if you can recall in real time back then Mm -hmm. did you have any reaction to that description 
You know, this is the first time I've even heard of it. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, Ms. Martha, I went back to read the United Farm Workers website page on the boycott. I mm-hmm. just wanted to see how history was sized up, how it was documented. And the page really just made it sound like it was Cesar Chavez's idea. There was not only no mention of, oh, yeah, Dolores Huerta said, make it grapes, not potatoes. There was not a mention that you were director of the boycott. There's none of that. You're written out of it. I think they're trying to correct that now. I think there's been a big pushback. You know, the previous president, Arturo Rodriguez, I don't think he appreciated my contributions that much. But Mm -hmm. uh, just recently, I visited the Museum of the Farm Workers Union. Uh And guess what? Mm. Yeah, they do have my name up there now. <laughs> Ms. Huerta, may I ask you, though, because, and I see this um, this reflex in you throughout our conversation. It probably explains mm. a lot of how you've gotten as far as you have. Your tendency to look at the bright side and jump to optimism and not reflect on pain, but just sort of point to what's working, It it's probably what makes you a great organizer. <laughs> and part of the, what I'm curious about, I guess it's more about your inner life and how you cope with being written out of the history that you made. Well, the thing is that when you do this kind of work, you don't do it uh, to be recorded in history. We are doing the work to make life better for people out there. I've had so much recognition. I mean, when you get recognized by the president of the United States, like I was given the Medal of Freedom. Dolores helped lead a worldwide grape boycott that forced growers to agree to some of the country's first farm worker contracts. I have umpteen honorary doctorates. I have, I think, 10 schools named after me. Uh, mm-hmm. I have streets named after me. Avenida Dolores Huerta will run from the Rio Grande to Isleta Huerta has her own square at the intersection of East First Street and Chicago And all of this is on the backs of all of the workers that went on strike, Mm -hmm. um, people that were killed in the movement, you know. Mm. And I'm getting the recognitions, but they're the ones that made everything happen, you know. And so, I mean, what more can one ask for? I mean, what more can one ask for? You know, the the tiny tough assistant thing, the being written out of history thing, I'm worked up about it. Do you think my outrage is misguided, misplaced? No, not at all, not at all. I think I think women need to be outraged about the way that women are treated, not only the lack of recognition, the lack of equal pay, the lack of equal representation. No, women need to be outraged. We need that outrage because that outrage that, we, that you are feeling and that I feel every day also, this is the energy that we need to move our country forward. So I want to thank you for your outrage. I want to, I want to glorify <laughs> your outrage. Throughout our conversation, I fished for certain moments, specific moments, when Dolores Huerta felt the need to assert her role as the co-founder of the union, the director of the boycott, and not just the tiny assistant. She recalled one specific time that was a real turning point when it hit her. By allowing men to be the face of the movement, she was helping to create a toxic culture, a predatory culture inside her organization. But finally, um, I guess it's like something that hit me over the head, is we had one of our uh, male organizers that 
sexually harassed one of our women mm. farm worker organizers, mm. and she wrote me a letter. And that made me so angry when I got that letter from her about this uh, sexual harassment that she was receiving on behalf of, behalf of one of our organizers. I took it to the executive board to bring that mm. to the attention of Cecil and the I'm the only woman on the board, right? Mm. And uh, that began to really change my mind a lot about, or not not change my mind, but to realize that I, as a woman, had to do something about the way the women were being treated. You wrote to the executive committee. You told the executive committee, hey, look at this going on. And then what happened? What did they do? Well, uh, Caesar took him out and uh, talked to him about his behavior mm-hmm. and was able to stop it, actually. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he stayed where he was. Yeah, he stayed where he was. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not judging it. I'm just trying to understand it. I'm not. I'm not bringing the standards of. Well, you know what? I, yeah. I, I'm still judging him. <laughs> He's one person that I refuse to engage with in any way. Yeah. Uh huh. Do you feel he should not have been allowed to stay? Well. You know, back then, uh, back before we had all of these great laws that have been passed to protect women from sexual harassment, you know, mm-hmm. it was kind of the norm. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, the norm has changed and women don't have to put up with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. But back then, your sense was, why are we even letting him stay? Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And were you able to say that to your colleague, to Senator Travis, to, to question, hey, what, what's the decision here? Well, I, I know that uh, they they put certain sanctions on him. Mm-hmm. I can't say that I was privy to those sanctions, uh, but I know it, the main thing is that the harassment stopped. Mm-hmm. It not only stopped, but it was also an example to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I ask about it, Ms. Huerta, it's, it is in my nature to pry, and that is obviously what I'm doing. No, it's fine. That, that's what you do. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what, you do. Uh-huh. that's what I do. And so... I guess I'm pivoting a little bit right now to take this example of sexual harassment Mm -hmm. to understand a bit more of the dynamic between you and your Mm co-founder. You and Cesar Chavez founded the farm workers organization together. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And in this instance, it sounds like he called the shots about what was going to happen to this man. And you disagreed with that call. Oh, not really. No, no, not really. No, 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 no. Uh-huh. I mean, you just had a moment ago that you would have liked to see this guy go. Right. And so did you talk to, to Cesar Chavez about that? Well, I knew that Cesar talked to him about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, if he, he was not fired, he probably should have been. And, uh, and he, he was not a good person. Is it verbal or physical? Maybe you would not put it in the category of sexual harassment, but I'd call it sexual co- coercion. Um, you know, in the Parker movement, we didn't really get salaries. Everybody got like $10 a week. Mm. The union took care of all of your expenses, the automobile, gasoline, health, anything, food, every, everybody was, you, you were pretty secure. Mm-hmm. And he did not want to give her her $10 a week unless she would have sex with him. Hmm. And so, you know, she contacted me and wrote me a letter telling me what was going on. Mm. And then I produced that letter at our executive board. Mm. So I guess it's sexual coercion, right? And the board warned him but did not remove him. 
Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And I think if that would have happened in today, mm-hmm. that that would have been a cause for, for termination. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But remember back then, you know, that, that standard had not been set yet. And have you publicly spoken about this before? No. When Dolores Huerta made this accusation on Art of Power, she also gave us a few names. She told us the name of the woman who was allegedly assaulted. Huerta also told us the name of the organizer who allegedly committed what she calls sexual coercion. In attempting to confirm the allegations, we contacted several members of the farm workers' movement. One of them did recall hearing about this alleged abuse secondhand, but we could not unearth additional evidence. Huerta says she no longer possesses the letter with the allegations. We spent several weeks attempting to contact the alleged victim without success. We did speak with the man who allegedly committed the sexual assault, and he denied it. Because we could not confirm the claim before publication, we have decided we are not going to name the alleged perpetrator at this time. My lessons from Dolores Huerta. One, representation matters. If you make your identity invisible because you don't want to seem grabby or attention-seeking, you may also be signaling that it's okay to treat humans with your identity as less than. Careful that your humility does not enable a toxic culture. Two, don't go at it alone. Whether building a campaign or raising children, enlist the help of others. Don't be ashamed to ask, even in the most intimate spheres. Three, having powerful adversaries can be advantageous. Channel their notoriety to lift your own and don't shy away from a good fight. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Hina Srivastava, Justin Bull, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our intern is Sylvia Goodman. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. As we mentioned, some archive in this episode was from two excellent documentaries, Dolores and Rape in the Fields. Check them out on pbs.org. If you liked what you heard, please pull out your phone and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Also, tell me what you think. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Arthi411, A-A-R-T-I-411. For exclusive offers, you can sign up for the Art of Power newsletter at wbez.org slash AOP newsletter. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.